You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? A little sleepy, but I'm okay. You stay up too late last night? Well, as you know, because you were there, I had a little Super Bowl party at my house last night. Yep. Uh, which then meant my children got all wound up on fruit snacks. And next thing you know, it's 9 o'clock. I'm trying to put my daughter to bed. I'm doing the usual thing where I say we can read two books and then that's it. We're going to sleep. And 20 minutes later, I'm like, wait, I'm, why am I showing her the Cyclops scene from the Armand Asante TV movie of The Odyssey? How did that happen? How did she trick me into doing this? That, that leaves me with questions as well. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like I ate too many snacks at well, the Super Bowl party. That's a given. Your wife makes, what is it, buffalo chicken dip? That's right. It's one of the greatest things that, you'll ever, that will ever grace your tongue. And it's just terrible for you. Now, just see, awful. I assumed it was great for me. Well, it's not exactly a, a health food. Let's say that. It tastes like there's about a brick of Velveeta in there. A lot of cream cheese. A couple chickens. A couple chickens. Some hot sauce. You know, maybe you could dip a carrot in there and kind of mitigate some of the damage you're doing to yourself. Not me. Ruffles. <laughs> See, that's just a rocket ship to hell. That's right. That's what I'm riding right now. Uh, as I tweeted yesterday, I was excited to come watch my, the first NFL game that I've seen all season at your house. It was a Cracker Jack. Uh, well, yes, that's there what I understand. My wife and I left at halftime so we could get our own children to bed so we wouldn't be up at 9 showing them various scenes from TV movies on our phones. Uh, so I later saw an alert on the, uh, on the home screen of my phone saying that the Patriots had accomplished the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, which about – that's just a little window into how much I care about the NFL, just uh, seeing it as an alert on my and phone. And I imagine you did one of these. Huh. I did, yeah. And then I, told, I told my wife about it this morning while uh, I was driving her to work. So there you go. I bet she just kind of subtly rolled her eyes, not really right in your face, just a little bit. Sort of, yeah. That doesn't necessarily differentiate that from any other interaction that we have. Right. We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a music producer from Deltona, Florida. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash dbeats7. As you know, that's the word beats with a Z. Beats. Yep. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, last Saturday's UFC Fight Night 104 went great for the zombie, but not so great for the Grasso. And in round number two, this weekend at UFC 208, does Anderson Silva complete his transition from greatest of all time to just some dude? And in round number three, the weight class matchmakers created specially for Chris Cyborg gets its first title fight this weekend. Who you got, Holly Holm or that other lady? All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Christian Franz, who writes, and I'm not sure how I should convey this, Ben, but this email is written in all caps. I mean, it's not a long email. No, he writes, who needs Vandalay Silva when we got that Androge girl, am I right? 
There you go. Now we should point good. out both Vanderlei and Andrage, perhaps on purpose, since this email is written in all caps, uh, are misspelled. I'm going to say they're phonetic spellings. Seems Just to help us out? I, well, I think that Christian Franz was really feeling it here, got caught up in the moment, and, you know... You're he telling me really he, convey... he opened up the Co-Main Event Podcast app on his phone and fired this off? I think that what happened here was he wanted us to feel like we were in the room with him and he was yelling at us while we were reading it. And I say, mission accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, that feeling definitely came through. You know what, though? I really like the idea of thinking about Jessica Andrade as a female 115-pound Vanderlei Silva. That's I, li- I like referring to her as that Andrade girl. Right? It's like we don't, we're not quite sure who she is, but... Yeah, I mean, that, it sounds too much like you androgynous. Want to say, like you're saying that she's androgynous? Yeah. I guess that is a, a drawback. Yeah. You know what the thing for me that was really um, a kind of a window into where she could go with this is when she did get caught a couple times by Angela Hill. She did. Got caught with a couple good shots, a couple good knees, um, some good right hands, and... It just, it did not even change the expression on her face. She seemed completely unaware that she had been hit with a shot that should at least make her rethink some things. Nope. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Makes you think that could be interesting against somebody like Champy. It sure is. You know, Jessica Andrade is one of those people in, uh, I guess, the long, great tradition of MMA sluggers who you can sure tell that it hurts a lot more when they hit the other person than when the other person hits them because that's what was happening here with Angela Hill. Uh, Angela Hill, by the way, comes in on relatively short notice as the Invictus strawweight champion uh, takes his fight against Jessica Andrade. And, uh, you know, I, I guess you got to celebrate her gameness. Like, she was down for this all the way and uh, had her moments, definitely, like, uh, you know, landed some hard shots on Andrade, too. But it was the kind of thing where uh, when Andrade punched her, she did, she did a little stanky leg for a second there when those punches landed and, uh, you know, Angela Hill's strikes uh, didn't do the same thing. Well, and Andrade had that ability, especially in this fight we saw it, to get you moving backwards just through sheer pressure and relentless attack. And when you can do that to somebody, you know, some people are better fighting on the retreat than others, but still, nobody is that dangerous when you are able to force them back and force them away from you like that. And when she can trap you up against the fence like she was doing to Angela Hill over and over again, then that's when she can do some real damage. You know, I'm really interested to see how that style, that Vanderlei-esque, just kind of forward motion, human buzzsaw kind of style, translates against a, a really proficient, really technical and sharp striker like Ioana Janjacek, especially if you have to do it for five rounds. Right, yeah, no, I'm interested to see that too. This is the straw weight fight I think we all want to see. Angela Hill certainly had her best moments in space in this fight, and you're right, when she did get trapped up against the fence, it was, it was uh, uh, bad for her when that happened. Uh, Jessica Andrade now has won three fights in a row at, at straw weight, and Dana White has said she's quote-unquote definitely or absolutely, I can't remember exactly what he said, up, up next for Joanna Yajajic, which I agree is a heck of a fight. Uh, can we talk just for a second about Brian Stan's uh, statement that Jessica Andrade does no, does no strength, and strength training, like does no weightlifting, which he said during her fight. Well, that was when he said uh, basically she grew up on a farm, and so basically, she's got that country breakfast, that's country what that breakfast is. farm girl strength. Yeah, uh, I'm going around hay bales. I'm going to just I'm going to call bullshit on that claim. <laughs> not necessarily on Brian Stan saying it, but maybe Jessica Andrade not coming up off the weightlifting that she does because 
Uh, I think she knows where they keep them. You think so? Yeah, I do. Just from looking at the physique, I think that she knows where the dumbbells are in the gym. I think she makes it over to the dumbbell corner. What about three this, times though? a week? What, what if she's working us on a technicality? What if she just uses like cables or something? Like, or it's all like Bowflex. So technically, like, there's no weight involved. She, you're telling me that Jessica Andrade is at home with the body action system? Maybe. Uh, just, just touching it up? Yeah. Maybe. Could I don't be. know, man. Somebody maybe, needs to get to the bottom of this. Maybe it's all push-ups. This sounds like a hashtag lifestyle piece. Maybe Ben Folks could check out. Sure. I'll Go down to wherever Jessica Andrade trains and do kind of a day in the life. And then I'll like, you know, follow her around, stake out her, her home and her gym and just wait to see her put her hands on a weight and then jump out. And go, Aha! Gotcha journalism gotcha. right there. Gotcha. Uh, you know what else I thought was awesome was her proclaiming that she's now the uh, linear yes. uh, Invicta <laughs> Strawweight champion and she wants to have a unification bout with uh, Joanna Jacek. That, that was interesting, especially because she also said in her interview that she could have made the fight easier on herself by taking Angela Hill down but she wanted to make it harder to kind of test herself uh, and give herself kind of a preview of fighting Yuenny and Jacek and kind of make it more exciting and a tougher fight, all that kind of stuff. Which that's when, like, when you start saying stuff like that, I'm like, either you're being way too honest to the point where it's kind of a dick move to say this right after you beat her, or you're you're messing with us a little bit. I can't tell which one. Well, I look forward to. Uh... Finding out more. Next question this week comes to us from Austin Pitts. He writes, how about my man Marcel Fortuna? Sure, he looks like a test tube baby produced from JDS and Robbie Lawler's genes, but he comes in at a 48-pound disadvantage, gets that nasty cut, then stops Anthony Hamilton's face like it hit a damn brick wall. Can you guys discourse this shit? And then he writes, and I apologize, which I'm not totally sure what he meant by that. Maybe just for the Junior Dos Santos Robbie Lawler test tube baby joke? Or for forcing us to, again, discourse things? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, ben, the cruiserweight division is back. Rampage Jackson better be looking over his shoulder. I know you love For this. Marcel Fortuna coming in at 210 and a half pounds and scoring the first round knockout three minutes and 10 seconds in against Anthony Hamilton. Uh, one of those fights where uh, it looked like it was going to go the other way and then just, I guess... In keeping with what we know about the heavyweight division, Marcel Fortuna just turns Anthony Hamilton's lights off with one punch. And one of those fights that is just visually fun to look at because a part of you is going, wait a minute, how is this happening? Did, did somebody get mixed up like backstage? Did they send the wrong guy out to the cage? Because these two dudes don't <laughs> look like they're in the same weight class. What happened here? Uh, and yeah, then he goes out there. Lands that one good shot, kind of comes down with the right hand right on the forehead of Anthony Hamilton, and you got total faceplant going on there. It's tough for me to tell what exactly we're supposed to take from that, especially in the heavyweight division where it seems like that can just happen to anybody at any time, uh, and next time it might be your turn. I don't know, I'm, but I'm going to have to see some more about your boy Marcel Fortuna. Do you know, though, Chad, I don't know if you looked at his record, 9-1, and one, according to Sharedog. Do you looking, know who the one is? I'm looking at it right now. This loss to JT Money, Jesse JT Taylor. JT Money. You're, you're, you're short-selling it, though, Ben, by not saying that it happened at an event called Dragon House 11. You know, and you hear that there was an event called Dragon House 11, and you're like, oh, man, that must have been way back in MMA's past in, like, 2001. Nope. 2012, my man. Dragon House 11. An event called Dragon House was successful enough to have at least 11 events. Oh, more than that. Check this out. You're not looking close enough. Marcel Fortuna comes into his UFC, UFC debut on the heels of four fights in a row. 
in the drag under the Dragon House banner, last appearing at Dragon House 20, where he defeated David Mitchell. Uh, it did seem weird to have him come into this fight at 210 pounds, and then he kind of explained it after the fight was over. He sounded like he took this fight against Anthony Hamilton on short notice, uh, and it sounds like he will be, at the very least, a light heavyweight moving forward, I would have to assume, uh, as long as he doesn't want to get himself into a dangerous uh, five-pound weight cut. Yeah, but you, then you always ask that question when like, you have to go from heavyweight to light heavyweight is, are you necessarily doing yourself a favor? I remember like Pat Barry used to say when people say, hey, man, why don't you just try to go to uh, light heavyweight? You're, you're too small for heavyweight. And he would say, I'd, A, I'd be too small at light heavyweight too. Um, and kind of B, at heavyweight, at least like I'm the more athletic guy. I might be the smaller guy, but I'm quicker. I'm, I'm a better athlete all around. You go down to light heavyweight, you're still going to be smaller than a lot of those guys. And the athleticism, especially at the top of the division, jumps up a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I'm jumping to too many conclusions to say Fortuna is going to wind up in the light heavyweight division. Uh, either division is pretty damn shallow at this point, and you could see 31-year-old Marcel Fortuna, if this first uh, performance is anything to judge by, uh, having, you know, at least some success in either division, whichever he decides to go with. You know, now I'm looking at it. Dragon House appears to be a Bay Area, California promotion. Their last event was in November, Dragon House 24. The main event of that fight card, according to Sheridog, was Sean Bunch versus Josh San Diego, which how is that not a pro wrestling headliner? Josh San Josh Diego. San Diego. Wow. Going to go up to the Bay Area. I'm sure he took the mic before the, the, the fight and insulted the crowd, mm-hmm. asked if there was anybody there from Oakland, and if so, did they want him to speak slower? Do you think that he's any relation to Carmen San Diego? I assume it is Carmen San Diego's little brother, and he's got a real chip on his shoulder. Always trying to live up to uh, yeah. the pressure put on him by his globe-trotting spy sister. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Bishop Davis. He writes, what the fuck is wrong with the new UFC ownership? I've never disliked Ryan Bader. Hell, I even picked him to beat John Jones when they fought then frowny face yeah frowny face indeed (laughs) you got that right bishop davis uh but it seems ludicrous to me that the heads of the brand would treat a guy who's seven and one in his last eight with so little value please discourse gentlemen uh of course ben bishop davis is referring to the fact that ryan bader uh who does have a a pretty respectable record the last couple years in the ufc uh and is most immediately on the heels of two straight wins over alir latifi and uh roger nog is uh, taking his talents over to Bellator. Sounded like he got he he wanted to test the free agent market, fought out his contract with the UFC, uh, got an offer from Bellator, which nobody is surprised about. I don't think. I think we could all tell from the comments Scott Coker had made recently that uh, Bellator was probably going to offer Ryan Bader a deal. And then my understanding is that the UFC just declined to match, so that uh, now Ryan Bader is cruising over there to the uh, vaunted Bellator light heavyweight division. You know on. <sighs> The comment that, hey, you know, Dana White said, it, I think Bellator is a good place for Ryan Bader right now. And I, I kind of am two minds of this because I, I see what we're getting at here. Like, hey, do you really feel like your light heavyweight division can afford to lose guys like Ryan Bader? Guys who, you know, win against pretty much everybody except for the best. You know, he's on a two-fight win streak and could probably continue to beat a whole bunch of the dudes you have in the light heavyweight division. But I can also see how the UFC is looking at it and going, well, Bader's been beat by Anthony Johnson. He's been beat by John Jones. You know, 
you could maybe get a little bit of heat going between him and Daniel Cormier. They had that thing there for a while where Cormier was talking about how he wanted the, the easiest fight in the division, give me Ryan Bader. Uh, but where are you really going to go with Ryan Bader if you're the UFC at this point? It feels like you've kind of seen what you're going to see, similar to, to Phil Davis, really, uh, in that sense. Then maybe if you go over there to Bellator, where there's a little bit of a different vibe going on and there are some more interesting matchups, you know, maybe he finds new life over there. Yeah, I, I kind of do think that this works out for everybody as long as we can recognize that the UFC is letting Ryan Bader go and keeping a bunch of dudes who are way worse than Ryan Bader. Yeah, and you know, you'd have to assume it that this comes down to just dollars and cents, right? The way this plays out, which, hey, frankly, uh, this may be, this may have a lot to do with the new trend of guys deciding to quote unquote test their worth on the free agent market, right? Ryan Bader. Uh, not a bad UFC light heavyweight, not the best UFC light heavyweight, 33 years old. So right there on the cusp, probably of his athletic prime uh, depends on, I think in this situation, what exactly Bellator offered him, because I think you're right to say that he's a dude that the UFC would probably kind of like to have around if they could do it on the cheap. But uh I think that we, what we've found out lately is Bellator is opening up the pocketbooks a little bit for some of these free agents. Uh, Scott Coker has said he wants to aggressively pursue free agents. So if Ryan Bader is getting paid and the UFC didn't feel like he was worth it to lay out the big bucks to keep him, then, yeah, this does seem like a decision that benefits everyone, especially since there's nothing saying Ryan Bader's not going to cruise over there and become Bellator light heavyweight champion. Yeah. Does Ryan Bader go over there and beat the shit out of Fedor Emelianenko? Maybe. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. I also, though, I think if there's an area where this does really hurt the UFC, uh, it's a guy like Ryan Bader gives you the ability to have these kind of between big fight cards, like somebody with a name who could main event uh, a fight night for you. Right, which is what they need, as we've discussed the last couple of weeks. They need that's, it, that's a guy they need pretty they bad. They need it something awful. I mean, you look at a lot of the, the main events you've got lately and the main events you've got coming up, and man, you could... You could do a lot worse than have Ryan Bader headlining against some other 205-er uh, you know, when you're at the Talking Stick Arena or whatever. You, you, know, you could use somebody like that. And when you're making these kind of decisions, while I can understand why, why you're making them, you are losing something like that is of a, a tangible worth to you if you're the UFC and something that is not in abundant supply everywhere you look. Meanwhile, Bellator is going to put that to the test because Ryan Bader is going to be headlining free shows on Spike TV uh, on for Bellator, maybe in a rematch against Phil Davis for the light heavyweight title since Bader has a split decision win over Phil Davis like not too long ago either, January of 2015. So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the role he would be in for the UFC, and I think for Bellator he's going to be, uh, you know, by Bellator standards, maybe a nice little playing chip. If I'm Ryan Bader, my first order of business is trying to coax Tito Ortiz out of retirement. Try to get that one back? Yeah, get it back. That ain't a bad, that ain't a bad idea if you were Ryan Bader. That kinda, it kind of felt like uh, if, it, if you feel like we are sometimes unfair to Ryan Bader, considering his relatively respectable win-loss record in the UFC, it kind of feels like his image never really recovered from that shocking choke-out loss to Tito Ortiz. Yeah, I, if I'm him, you know, whatever fight they put me in first – or if I'm fighting Liam McGeary or whoever it is, as soon as I get that mic in my hand, it's Tito Ortiz, you absolutely suck. Wow. And then just go from there. How about you bring out uh, the insane one, Dustin McCulley, wearing a uh, mask? Oh, wow. What do you think about that? That is some next-level shit. <laughs> uh, last question this week comes to us from Dave Shep. 
He writes, looking at the UFC 208 fight card and couldn't help but notice a fight between two of the CME's guys staring me in the face in Jacare, whispers, Jacare, Jacare, and Tim Boach. How will you guys cope with your conflicted loyalties? Please discuss. Uh, ben, a pretty big deal middleweight contender fight here on UFC 208 between Ronaldo Jacare, Jacare, Souza, and uh, Tim Boach. How will we deal with our conflicted loyalties here? Well, look, man. I'm not the one who is the owner of the domain, thebarbarianhorde.tv, so I don't feel quite as conflicted. Uh, for me, it's, it's fine to be on the barbarian bandwagon in a kind of fun, semi-ironic way. Let me way. write that down, barbarianbandwagon.tv. <laughs> I thought, isn't that the name of the forums? I thought it was the barbarian bandwagon. <laughs> oh, right, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, Come check out our forums, but by the way. let's be serious. Jacques Array is the guy who has a real future in the middleweight division here. Jacques Array is the one to get excited about. Tim Boach is kind of the, the Barry Horowitz uh, of this Whoa, matchup. Wow, and we Barry all know Horowitz. It. We all know what we're hoping to see here. It's the, this fight is kind of a time killer for Jacques Array. He's supposed to go in there, win this one, then get indignant about having to wait for his title shot this long. Um, which, of course, means he will get surprised with a head kick knockout in the first yeah, round. Yeah, man, this is the fight where you get beat by Tim Boach, probably by one-punch knockout in the third round in a fight you've been dominating if you are Ronaldo Jacare Souza. That's because that's just uh, kind of how it goes. Uh, and you, you say Ronaldo Jacare Souza is the one that has the future in the division until Tim Boach beats him. Then all of a sudden, well, we got a three-fight win streak for the Barbarian, and we're climbing that chart, baby. We're <laughs> climbing it one ladder at a time, one rung at a time. You know, I've... And then I'm sure that the, the website will get two, maybe 300 visitors a day. Well, that's, that would crash us right there, <laughs> since uh, basically there's a hamster running in a wheel keeping our server up and running. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Just go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all those days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's fun we would like to think it's informative and if you don't like it it's really easy to unsubscribe as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number two round number one what round are we doing round number one round number one just started coming up this this is the first round settle in here we go Well, Ben, divergent fortunes for the competitors in the main event and co-main event of this past weekend's UFC Fight Night 104. Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie, returns from just a little bit over three years away from the cage to complete his mandatory military service at home in Korea. He comes out and gets the first round knockout victory over Dennis Bermudez. Uh, in what was a fun fight for the two minutes and 49 seconds that it lasted. Meanwhile, in the co-main, hot prospect Alexa Grasso uh, suffers her first defeat at the hands of journeywoman Felice Herrig uh, in a strawweight fight that uh, was kind of a tepid decision. Uh, Herrig ends up winning unanimously 
29-28 twice and 30-27 once. Where do you want to start with this, since I know we want to talk about both these fights during this round? You know, why don't we start with the co-main and work our way up? Yeah, this was a weird performance, I thought, from Alexa Grasso. I'm yeah. not sure exactly what was going on. Uh, you, you know, obviously a great performance from Felice Herrig to go out there and get that win uh, over Grasso, who's a person that a lot of people expect to be a real up-and-comer in the strawweight division. Uh, that said, I wouldn't be surprised later if we found out there was something wrong with Alexa Grasso here. Uh, and if not physically, at least uh, it, it was clear that she had some kind of trouble that she didn't anticipate with Felice Herrig. Uh, just a very uh, listless performance by Alexa Grasso, kind of uh, hanging back a little bit too much. I think just allowed uh, Felice Herrig to uh, build up this this lead in the first couple of rounds uh, and then coast her way to this unanimous decision win. Well, you know, I'll say this for Alexa Grasso. She was beating the shit out of the imaginary person four inches in front of Felice Herrig. And then she closed off those four inches in the last ten seconds of the fight because right. that's when things really picked up. But uh, That's when she finally seemed to find her sense of urgency. And when you watched her standing there before the decision was read, I was surprised at how hopeful she seemed. Uh, like, you know, on her face, you got the sense that she was going like, I don't know, maybe not, but maybe? And then was like, there was a, a real kind of surprised disappointment on her face when... Uh, Felice Herrig was declared the winner, which made me wonder, like, did you did she just think that she was doing a lot better, and that's why we didn't see the urgency? It could be. I mean, this is this is one of those fights that may well have felt a lot different to be in than to watch from the safety of our couches. Uh, there wasn't a ton of action. It's not like Felice Herrig was just dominating her out there. It was kind of a slow paced fight where it just felt like Herrig was scoring more than Alexa Grasso, and it didn't seem like Alexa Grasso demonstrated a terrible amount of urgency to go out there and score points. So, yeah, I could see this being one that maybe, if you didn't have the benefit of of, of seeing from our vantage point, might have been one that, that felt uh, closer than it actually was. But, I mean, I don't think anybody sitting at home watching this thing go down was feeling particularly hopeful that Alexa Grasso was about to win the decision, especially after you heard what the scores were. Yeah, uh, and... You know, you say, like, maybe there was something wrong with her, or maybe she's 23 yeah. and still getting that experience under her belt and going up against uh, Felice Herrick, who, you know, I feel like, while probably literally correct to call her a journey woman just because of, you know, what, what the term means and what her career has looked like, she's got a ton of experience and doesn't do anything really badly. No. You know, can, can do a lot of things well, and especially it seemed like when she got a little momentum going and found her confidence, then uh, you could kind of see her uh, just get like more comfortable in there and more uh, certain that she was going to win that fight. I mean, when she gets up off the mat, I believe, after the second round and goes back to her corner, there's a little bit of a strut there that I think that we haven't seen from her in a while. Yeah, and Felice Caring, I guess, maybe is one of those people where it feels like we know the book on her because we've seen her around the sport for a long time. We've seen her in Bellator. We've seen her in Invicta. We saw her on The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, and, you know, uh, upon arriving in the UFC, loses that fight to Paige Van Zandt back in April of 2015. That was her second fight in the UFC, not counting those Ultimate Fighter exhibitions. Uh, but then Felice Herrig takes about a year and a half off, a little bit less than a year and a half off, uh, and has looked a lot better in these last two fights that we've seen her in. First against Kaylin Curran, uh, last July when she won by first round rear naked choke and, and won a performance of the night bonus. And now in this fight with Alexa Grasso, where UFC, the commentators made the point, 
that Felice Herrig looked a little bit different on her feet, that she was throwing more combinations, that she was being a little bit more aggressive. So maybe it's just a situation where, A, we hadn't really seen the best from Felice Harrigan when we thought we had, and she's cleaned some stuff up and is a better fighter now than she was when she lost to Paige Van Zandt, and or B, that she surprised Alexa Grasso with what she was able to do, and Alexa Grasso is young enough and inexperienced enough that she didn't really know how to either go to a plan B or rebound from from what Herrig was doing to her. I don't know. What do you think about the strategy from Felice Herrig of the either-or call-out? At the end. I liked it because A, you know, she had some names ready that she wanted to say, and B, you you ain't getting that fight with Paige Manzan again. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. The UFC is gonna take that whatever victory it can get from Paige Manzan and just quietly yeah. stick its hands in its pockets and walk away whistling. Gonna tuck that one in the back pocket and leave it there. Uh yeah. And hey, let's face it, like Michelle Watterson, uh Felice Herrick would be a fight that I would watch. That that's a good call out. I feel like that's you know makes sense in terms of the UFC rankings and it's two people that we know. Uh, yeah, man, put that on a fight night somewhere and I would watch it. I would also watch her fight Angela Hill. Just saying. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I think uh, calling out Michelle Watterson, I think you're right, is a fight that she is more likely to get. Also, I think a fight that she is more likely to lose. But you know, if you're Felice Herrig at this point, you might as well take a shot at somebody where. If you go out there against somebody who is supposed to beat you and you can you can surprise us, then things get serious. Then maybe you get rocketed up uh, and really get a shot to to do something. Whereas you know if you stay sticking around beating up and comers, uh, you know it doesn't necessarily give you the same boost. Let's talk about the main event a little bit here. Chan Sung Jung, who we had not seen since August of 2013. Uh, when he lost in a UFC featherweight championship fight to Jose Aldo at UFC 163, he comes back against uh, Dennis Bermudez in the main event of UFC Fight Night 104 and wins via pretty fun knockout midway through the first round. Uh, I guess this is just what we can expect from the Korean Zombie, right? Goes out there and gives us a fun fight, gets tagged a couple times by Dennis Bermudez in ways that might have had the guys in the audience wearing their Korean zombie shirts with their faces painted, feeling kind of nervous. And then uh, kind of a one-punch uh, uppercut knockout of, of Bermudez that just turns everybody's lights out right away. Well, yeah, and I would have been nervous if I was out there, if I'd painted the face, got all hyped up, made the t-shirts, all that stuff. Because not only was he getting touched up a little bit there, but you could see his legs. They were a little bit stanky, if you will. Uh, he looked like he was feeling those. And I guess, like, I kind of forgot, like, oh, yeah, that's kind of the Korean Zombies thing, is he wants to get you into one of those kind of rock'em, sock'em deals. And it seemed like that's what he was trying to bait Bermudez into. But then the the actual finish, you know, it wasn't like he needed to get him into a huge brawl to get it. He just kind of seemed like he had seized on one tendency, like he was going to bait Bermudez into throwing that jab and ducking his head. And as soon as he, you know, he got him to do it once and kept that pressure on him, uh, knowing kind of like, that that's what Bermudez was going to do. That when he felt that pressure and he wants you to back off a little bit, he wants you to give him a little bit of space, that's what he's going to do. He's going to throw that jab uh, without much behind it. And did it and timed that and placed that uppercut just perfectly Yeah. Uh, and put him away. I was a little bit troubled, though, when they asked him in the post-fight oh. interview, like, hey, how hurt were you by by some of those punches early on? And he basically did not have any recollection of being hit. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up, the fact that uh, he actually gave a fairly long answer in Korean to that and then had to confer with the the interpreter 
They had a little back and forth, which is not something you always see in the post-fight interview. And then the interpreter simply said, yeah, he, he doesn't remember that, which uh, amusing, I thought, but also, I mean, also only amusing if you don't think about it too long. <laughs> yes. Uh, where do we put Chan Sung Jung in the featherweight top 15, Ben? He's, he's unranked, but only because he's been out so long. I think his only loss in the UFC is Jose Aldo, correct? Uh, is that right? Me, I'm not looking at well, it. Well, let me see. He, yeah, he, uh, I mean, he came in off of those two losses. Like he had that, uh, oh, right. He lost twice to Leonard, Leonard Garcia. And then he got that, that head kick knockout from George Roop right before, uh, he came into the UFC. Um, so, but then, yeah, like, you know, he, he won three straight, including that, uh, fastest knockout, uh, against Mark Hominick, uh, the twister submission against Leonard Garcia, that awesome fight against Dustin Poirier. So he was really on a roll there, uh, until that loss to Jose Aldo. Um, it's tough for me to know, though, from especially from a fight where you're getting beat up a little bit. You're kind of basically losing the entirety of this very short fight right up until you win it. Yeah. Uh, and against a guy who is not exactly at the top of the division himself, and it is a more competitive and more talented and just kind of overall more fun and ferocious division than it was when Chan Sung Jung left in 2013. Sure, I would go ahead. I would not put him in what you might describe as the top tier right now, which would be, say, Jose Aldo, Max Holloway, Frankie Edgar, Ricardo Lamas, Cub Swanson. I'm just kind of cutting that off arbitrarily, but let's call that the top tier. I would put him in this second tier right there with dudes like Jeremy Stevens, Anthony Pettis, Charles Oliveira, Yair Rodriguez, Dennis Bermudez. Uh, I would put Chan Sung Jung squarely in the middle of that, and frankly, uh, hashtag would watch any of those matchups. Chan Sung Jung, Jeremy Stevens, book it. I'm there. Anthony Pettis, yes, would watch. Yeah, Rodriguez, I will pop popcorn for that. That sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> but yeah, man, good to have him back, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that he kind of reminded us that he is a really fun guy to watch. And it seemed like uh, for the UFC, at least Dana White would have us believe that this was the clincher for them to decide uh, to go back to Korea. Oh, yeah, uh, okay. And, and do an event there. Which, I don't know, I mean, you got the Korean Superboy and you needed this to convince you to go back to Korea and do a show? Come on. Superboy versus Zombie? That's just, that's, come on, that's too much. Yeah, now when you could get them both on the card against other people. Uh, all right, Ben, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Sure. Well, Ben, we're moving on into this round number two about Anderson Silva. So I sh guess I should say, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Anderson Silva for, as I said in the beginning, completing his transition to being just some dude. And one of the uh, signs that you can tell that he's just some dude is he's, he's out here talking about fighting Conor McGregor. Like you do. Like you do, to which I say, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Sit down. You are Anderson Silva. You don't have to do this. You don't have to talk about fighting Conor McGregor. You are the greatest of all time. But here's his quote. First of all, I respect a lot Conor McGregor because this man changed everything in the UFC because I am very respectful of Conor McGregor's style. I think it's a great challenge for my martial arts techniques. I don't talk to disrespect Conor McGregor. I do it for the challenge for myself and the best stand-up fighting. Uh, I think that this is a great show. It's a great fight for the rest of my life, for the rest of my story in the UFC. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? Come on, Anderson Silva. You know, I never thought I'd say this, but can we go back to talking about Anderson Silva versus Roy Jones Jr.? Wow. Okay, there you go. That's uh, that's how I feel about this conversation. Well, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? My Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to Adam Milstead's knee. <laughs> okay. Did you see that shit? Man. I've said yes. I, First I, of all, he goes out there against 
video game character Curtis Razorblades. 1980s Miami private detective. <laughs> and he is just getting ragdolled. Looks like they just, they do not belong not only in the same weight class, but just, it looks like he, like Curtis Blades is beating up a junior high school kid out there. Just throwing Adam Milstead around. You can see that he, he kind of tweaks his knee in the first round. And then as if on cue, after he comes out there for the second round and Brian Stan is talking about how he thinks his corner should not have let him back up off the stool. They had to see that he was hurt or they should have seen that he was hurt. Um, it's clearly a bad idea to have him out there right now. And then the knee takes a left turn that it is not designed to take uh, during one of Curtis Blades' takedown. Are you fucking kidding me, man? That was gross. Fucking kidding me? But then Curtis Blades is going to go out there all compassionate-like afterwards. Well, he's a good man, Curtis Blades. Man, I mean, I get it, but like when you're when you're Curtis Blades, what you need to do there is launch into like kind of a video game boss laugh. <laughs> now, see, if I'm a rich industrialist who needs someone to find my runaway teenage daughter, I'm probably going to call Curtis Blades, private investigator. And he knew your case was trouble the moment you walked in the door. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, here we are. It's the year 2017. The UFC is in New York. Anderson Silva is on the card, not in the main event. Fighting Derek Brunson, trying to get his first win since 2012. Yeah. I ask you, Chad, how do we get here? You know, this is still a tough one to wrap the old mind brain around, especially since we don't have any idea how this fight came about, right? Like, this is one that the UFC kind of dropped without notice, I believe, on a Friday afternoon uh, via its Twitter account. And when it came out, everybody was just kind of, holy shit, what the fuck? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Anderson Silva against Derek Brunson. And I think it's tempting to say, as we said during the opener, uh, that this is the transition uh, but uh, from Anderson Silva being the greatest of all time and former champion uh, to being just some dude who fights other tough uh, top contender middleweights. And I think, as you said, the first time we talked about this fight several weeks ago, maybe this was the just get lost matchup uh, that the UFC would send that message to Anderson Silva. Uh, I think there's a slightly different way to think about it if we are so inclined and that that is uh, that this is kind of like the the spot matchup phase of Anderson Silva's career where, uh, you know, he gets injured against Chris Weidman in December of 2013 and obviously is out for a long time and then returns uh, with this kind of fun, wacky matchup against Nick Diaz at UFC 183. And then after that, he fights Michael Bisping in, in, in London. Uh, so like another kind of like spot matchup where the UFC can use Anderson Silva uh, and his promotional wiles to sort of get them over for with Michael Bisping in England. And then he comes in on short notice and saves UFC 200 in a, in a way against Daniel Cormier. And now you see him added sort of at the last minute to this slumping fight card of UFC 208 against Derek Brunson. So I think all of that is a kind of sign, Ben, that the UFC knows that Anderson Silva still has something promotionally, and they're kind of using him as a guy to bring in 
uh, in whatever situation when they need him, especially UFC 200 and UFC 208 seem like those kind of examples. Yeah, well, I guess I just I felt like we had decided that from here on out, Anderson Silva was just going to kind of do fun stuff. Right. And I'm not saying that this fight isn't fun. Competitively, I think it's super fun. Yeah. Name-wise, it's weird. And it's, uh, like, it's pretty serious. You know, like going out there against like a guy like Derek Brunson, uh, and as a, just used as a kind of a little bit of spice uh, to help out at UFC 208. It's it's not as fun weird as I guess I expect. I thought that we were in it's a not, fun weird. It's not Daniel Cormier or Nick Diaz, right? Like I, I guess I just had a different concept of what we were doing with Anderson Silva's career, but maybe this is supposed to be the litmus test to figure out what we are going to do with Anderson Silva's career. And it's that kind of matchup. You know, Derek Brunson rolls in. He had won five fights in a row leading up to uh, November 2016 when he lost that very, very weird fight to Bobby Knuckles, a.k.a. Robert Whitaker, in Melbourne, Australia at the fight night event that they uh, headlined uh, in that it was a fight where Derek Brunson uh, appeared to just sprint out there into the teeth of Robert Whitaker's offense uh, you know, without without giving a care in the entire world, and that made it ridiculous and fun to watch. Yeah, did a lot of blocking uh, with his face in that one. In the same way that watching two guys fight in an alley by a dumpster could be fun, I guess this Would fight watch. was fun. Yeah. And uh, but Robert Whitaker ended up winning it and taking away a lot of Derek Brunson's momentum, which makes the Anderson Silva fight kind of interesting for Derek Brunson. And I guess the other side of that coin is kind of interesting for Anderson Silva too, because if you're Derek Brunson and you beat Anderson Silva, you're back. Yeah. If you're Anderson Silva and you lose to Derek Brunson, you're done. I mean, not done, done, but like that's the Anderson Silva that you are now. Well, I think if you, if you're Anderson Silva and you lose to Derek Brunson, then I think you start thinking about that Nick Diaz rematch. Like then you're, you're firmly back in the fun, weird zone. Like you're not climbing the the ranks anymore. And that, that conversation is just kind of over, especially as your age. Um, but for me, like the interesting thing that I I, I want to see from Derek Brunson is because that fight against Bobby Knuckles was so weird. I am not sure that it told us exactly where he stands in, in the division, the way those usually do. Usually when you got two guys who are both kind of, you know, around the same level, um, both moving up the middleweight ladder, you throw them against each other as kind of a, a contender eliminator to find out who's going to be left standing. And I'm not saying that, you know, I think he's necessarily the the better fighter than Robert Whitaker. I just feel like we don't totally know for sure because of the way that fight went down. Right. Yeah. Uh, just like I said, if Derek Brunson beats Anderson Silva, like he's back. I think the same thing could be true for Anderson Silva here, just because you think about, what was kind of a weird fight against Daniel Cormier at UFC 200 where Anderson Silva obviously took it on very short notice and Daniel Cormier obviously played it very safe. He didn't want to mess around and get knocked out in, in this fight that was sort of like a, uh, almost a no win situation for the guy who is the light heavyweight champion. Uh, Anderson Silva though, remember every now and then during the Cormier fight, he would throw a couple punches or a kick and you would think, Oh, 
Anderson Silva is still dangerous when he wants to be. He's not as good as he once was, but perhaps he is as good once as he ever was. Uh, going on like three straight weeks, we've used that now. I know. Yeah, it's uh, we got to stop or else we're going to owe, owe Toby Keith some money. We got to send <laughs> Toby Keith like a 15 cent royalty check. I imagine he already, he just heard that we owed him some money and he's throwing a chaw out of his mouth and coming to get it. Ben, is there any chance that Anderson Silva goes out in this fight and does some Matrix-style shit to Derek Brunson like he did against Forrest Griffin years and years ago, and we, we say to ourselves, Anderson Silva is back. You know, I can never say that that chance does not exist. Uh, I think it would have to be, you know, one short burst the way we've seen him do. I mean, even in that fight against Michael Bisping, where he looked surprisingly vulnerable at times, but still, if he sees you trying to talk to the ref about how your mouthpiece is missing, he's going to jump up there and knee you right in the face. Uh, he can still do that. He's got that in him. Uh, maybe he just has to be a little more careful about when he chooses to to use that jetpack uh, because it's not going to be there in endless supplies for him. Um, but I, if I am Derek Brunson, the thing I have to tell myself like the two things I have to tell myself about going in the fight Anderson Silva is one, do not become mesmerized by the fact that it's Anderson Silva and stand there and wait for him to do some crazy Jedi shit to you. But two, do not go crazy and run at that man and give him the chance to do that kind of stuff because that's exactly the kind of thing that Anderson Silva would, would thrive on. You know what is perhaps the ultimate commentary about the weird place that we are in with this fight is that Derek Brunson comes into this fight the slight favorite against Anderson Silva, which if you could get in a time machine and, and go back a few short years in time would seem completely insane. But here he is going off anywhere between minus 135 and minus 150 and Anderson Silva, Anderson Silva at plus 130, 133, so just the slight favorite. Uh, you know, it's unfair to go back and, and look at guys' past fights, start reading their record and think, what was even going on here, right? Like, you can do this to almost anyone in MMA, look historically at their win-loss record and, and uh, wonder how they became the unbeatable phenomenon that they were. I just want to point out, and this, I, this feels unfair as I say it. And I know <laughs> oh, good, that Anderson Silva is better than this. But Anderson Silva, if you take away that Nick Diaz fight, his last two wins were over Stefan Bonner and Chael Sonnen at UFC's 153 and 158 in 2012, for God's sakes. And before that, Yushin Okami, Vitor Belfort, and Chael Sonnen, dating back to 2010. Now, at the time, this man is dominating the world. In the rearview mirror... Uh, he ain't actually, he ain't fighting Goliath out there. Who else was there? No, there wasn't anyone. That's what I'm saying. It's, that's why it's unfair. But at the same time, whew, you 2010, know, huh? I, I hope you have trouble sleeping tonight. <laughs> I hope that as you lay your head down on the pillow, you uh, just a little bit of guilt starts to gnaw away at the core of your being for what you've done here today. Well, that would happen anyway, even if we hadn't <laughs> had this discussion vis-a-vis -vis Anderson Silva. Who is the greatest? Of all time, by the way. Don't try this Let now. Let me just say Don't that. Don't try and get back in his good graces just, I'm trying now. to get my eyes up above the, the edge of the earth, above the hole that I dug. <laughs> Anything else you want to say against Ander about Anderson Silva, Derek Brunson? I'm looking Who you got? Fight picking champ, MMA junkie 2016 with the Photoshop clip art trophy on your profile? That's right. Um, Derek Brunson. Take it to the bank. 
we're gonna, I, this I is guess. A, we're going to start a new Can segment add, where guess. Ben Folks gives his stone cold lead pipe locks of the weekend. Yeah. Except I just sound like totally non-committal and unsure. <laughs> we're going to get, get a one eight hundred number where people call up for for the free pick of the weekend. Yeah, and from it'll ace just, handicapper Ben Folks. It'll be a recording of me going, I think Derek Brunson, but I don't know, man. Anderson Silva could win that too. Take it to the bank. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, we've talked about this kind of strange fight booking that serves as the main event of UFC 208 a few times now. Uh, the women's featherweight title match between Holly Holm and Jermaine Durand- Durandamy. Got it. Boy, that's nailed that one, huh? The Iron Lady. Woo! Just going to go with Iron Lady from here on yeah, out. Same that's... way we just call Chan Sung Jung zombie yeah, while he's safer. fighting. Uh, have you made peace with this matchup? Or are we still looking at this, this thing as a uh, what might have been situation with uh, Cyborg Justino? I've made peace with what it is and why. But that doesn't mean I'm going to pretend that it's something that it's not. Because what you got here is you got the division that was made for Cyborg. The division Cyborg built. Uh, and then you got Holly Holm rolling in on a two-fight losing streak, going up against Jermaine Durandamy, who has a two-fight winning streak against a couple of people without Wikipedia pages. Um, and it's just gonna just kind of deeply weird that this is happening. Um, and yet, damn it, clearly it's going to happen, no matter what we think about it. So that's what I have made peace with. Um, but I am not gonna sit here. And act like whoever wins this fight is the baddest woman on the planet at 145 pounds. One of the things that makes it strange and perhaps compelling for me is that we still, from fight to fight, have no idea which version of Holly Renee Holm Kirkpatrick will show up to fight in these fights. Uh, Because, you know, she had the uh, two kind of tepid... UFC fights to begin with, where she fought uh, Raquel Pennington and Marianne Renault uh, in 2015, and then obviously uh, capped that year in November at UFC 193 with the amazing performance, perfect performance against Ronda Rousey in Melbourne that ends with her knocking Ronda Rousey out just about a minute into the first round, and immediately on the heels of that, turns around and loses these back-to-back fights against Misha Tate and Valentina Shevchenko, which leaves us with this profile of Holly Holm as a person who can be very devastating, especially if you come out and kind of uh, heedlessly try to bring the fight to her. But a person who can uh, otherwise look somewhat listless and tepid if, you, if you're not going to go out there uh, and do that. And if, you know, if she has to be the aggressor and if she, if she has to lead the dance, so to speak, she can kind of, uh, you know, sometimes look somewhat underwhelming. And that, to me, that makes me totally unsure what to expect in a matchup with the Iron Lady. Yeah, especially because I think that Jermaine Durandamy is probably going to be the aggressor, um, but I don't see her doing it in a super reckless way. Like, I don't see her just charging right at Holly Holm and giving her a chance to lay back and, and pick her apart and do that offense she likes. I see her more kind of getting in your face, um, clinching you up against the fence, making it a little bit messy. Uh, and... I don't know exactly how Holly Holm is going to deal with that because 
it is so hard just to guess what you're going to get out of Holly Holm these days. Um, whereas Jermaine Duran to me, I feel like you kind of know what you're going to get, even when, even though it's not going to be super spectacular. I mean, she can still kickbox. Uh, she can still do some damage. Uh, if she gets you in the clinch, she's, her, her size can be a problem for a lot of people. Um, but at the same time, like if, if you made me guess, I would say underwhelming split decision victory for Jermaine Durandamy here. Yeah, Durandamy comes in as the slight favorite, minus 125, uh, Holly Holm at plus 105, so pretty darn close fight. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange one, and, and to uh, add another heaping of uncertainty to the top of it, you know, we, this is the first time we will see either of these people fighting at 145 in the UFC. Uh, Jermaine Durandamy fought at 145 earlier in her career. Uh, I don't know if Holly Holm did when she was knocking around the uh, the independent circuit, uh, but she'll be up at 145 this time, which, uh, you know, we you could guess would be the more uh, natural weight class for her. She's kind of a big 135-pound fighter, so... Uh, you know, maybe without that additional weight cut, she's she's helped out a little bit. But again, we just don't know. Uh, I was I thought to myself, there's no way the UFC has rankings listed for women's featherweight since there is no women's featherweight division. But if you go to the UFC rankings page, it has a heading for women's featherweight. And then it says no rankings available for this selection, which makes me think probably be better off just to not have that on there. Because <laughs> that just makes it look a little worse. Yeah, it does. You know, the ads for this one seem to promise an epic brawl, which I guess you got to do because you're trying to sell the damn thing. Yeah. Um, and I, let's point out also during Fight Night 104 this past weekend, uh, almost as if the UFC is conceding that it's going to take a team effort to come in here and, and do the heavy lifting that Ronda Rousey used to do. Uh, a, a short, but I thought pretty well-made uh, hype vignette for all of women's MMA aired during that fight night. So... Uh, I thought that was actually pretty cool that they did that, just kind of given uh, all of these divisions a slightly different spin than what we've seen from them in the past. Well, the interesting thing to me to watch is going to be how large a shadow we allow Cyborg to cast during mm -hmm. this thing. Because, you know, depending on who's on the broadcast team and how that whole situation goes, we've seen the UFC in the past be sometimes surprisingly honest with what the real situation is, other times way less so. And like, here's one where I really hope that we don't just pretend that Cyborg doesn't exist. Right. Because you, she has got to be a part of the story here with the inaugural 100, women's 145-pound belt in the UFC. I understand you don't want to let her, you know, let somebody who isn't in the cage dominate the, the talk, but at the same time, she has got to be a part of this conversation if we're going to be real with ourselves. Sometimes with the UFC, it depends on how much they want to bury a person. Yeah. <laughs> as to uh, whether or not they, they talk about it or not. So it'll be interesting to see. I think you're right whether they do take that on. I saw Holly Holm has kind of downplayed it leading up to this fight, saying that a lot of a lot of hoops need to be jumped through. A lot of things still have to happen before a potential fight with Chris Cyborg Justino would happen. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would expect any like fiery Chris Cyborg call outs on the mic, no matter who wins this thing. Although I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, it is interesting to think, uh, what you, what you end up with matchup wise here, depending on who wins and who loses this thing. Uh, it seems like everyone kind of wants the opportunity to become that two division champion. And I don't know, you know, if Holly Holm becomes women's featherweight champion, does she just go back down to bantamweight and try to fight? 
uh, Amanda Nunes for the bantamweight title? Did someone come up and try to fight Holly Holm or Jermaine Durandamy for the for the featherweight title? We're in completely uncharted territory, uh, and it would feel a lot more reassuring, I think, if Chris Cyborg was around because, if I'm not mistaken, at least one of us sat on this podcast several weeks ago and said, doesn't even matter if you have a women's featherweight division, just put the strap on Chris Cyborg uh, and let the chips fall where they, where they may. Well, now you don't have a featherweight division, but you don't have Chris Cyborg either. So that kind of makes the, uh, the the waters even muddier. Them waters as muddy as shit, Chad. They sure are. They sure are, Ben. Well, well then. We want to do just saying stuff? Yeah, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your... Just saying stuff this week. Well, Chad, this happened on the prelim, so I'm sure you did not see it. But in the fight between the catchweight fight, by the way, between Tisha Torres and Beck Rawlings. I did see it, actually. I did see it. Do you see the moment where Beck Rawlings apparently hears something she doesn't like from the crowd and gives the finger, which we had to rely on accounts afterwards because I knew something was up when we got the flash of the little weird shot, the weird like upward angle shot of the cage that you get on uh, one of the Fox uh, affiliates when... Something inappropriate you, for I mean, family you assume, audiences well, well, someone has broken their femur. So that's what you assume, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Either that or, you know, somebody has flashed the middle finger at the crowd. And apparently this time it was Beck Rawlings just kind of extending that to the crowd in general after she heard apparently something that she did not like during the fight. I'm just saying, well, I can understand how that might be tempting to do. If you're hearing stuff from the crowd... Just you, the last thing you want to do is acknowledge that you can hear them and that you feel one way about it because now, now you've made it a fun game for them. Right. Yeah. And in an intimate setting. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> it wasn't like uh, 30,000 people showed up to this thing. You know, now you have turned it into something back and forth but that the, the, the two of you are engaged in, you and the crowd. Never a good idea. Plus, Maybe reserve that for fights where you're winning. I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, I don't know if you saw this, uh, erstwhile UFC fighter and uh, journalist and seemingly good guy, Mike Jackson, is out here trying to bait CM Punk into a fight in the UFC by using the slogan, and I quote, let's find out who the real can is. Awesome. So I guess this week, I'm just saying, it's got to be the first time we've used that slogan for a fight since Tank Abbott fought Scott Ferrazzo in some guy's backyard, <laughs> which it, it's kind of awesome. It makes me think, you know, maybe we've been doing this all wrong the whole time, trying to figure out who is the best. Yeah. Maybe we should have been just as equally trying to figure out who is not the worst. That's right. That's I'm just right. saying. I think you are slightly worse than me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Anyway, just that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all of the happenings at UFC 208. Uh, And then we will look ahead, will we not? To Fight Night Lewis versus Brown, February 19th. Sure, sure we will. From Scotiabank Center in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Granddaddy of them all. Johnny Hendricks versus Hector Lombard, also on that card. Well, there you go. So That's... start getting ready now. Okay, I'll, I will. I will Sharpen up myself. that fighting tooth because you're going to want to sink it deep into this one. <laughs> Thank you for that image. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Which, which one is the fighting tooth? It's a, you've probably already had it removed. <laughs> okay. A lot of times, for especially in young kids, they'll go in and, uh, right, yeah. for cosmetic purposes. Yeah. Take it out. I hear, hear you that, that culturally that's on the decline. A lot of doctors won't do that anymore.
Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of parents are opting to leave the fighting team.